0: Hey, welcome to our latest edition of Saltier Politics. This week is a really interesting, great educational conversation. We are talking about marijuana and also
1: Fish the band, which all of you can stow your cynicism on.
0: It it's a great conversation. I think education is one of the most important things to take away, kind of the vilification of a, of a drug, but then also knowledge is power. So when people are going through cancer or their PTSD, they know about it and can ask their healthcare provider. And if it is a viable option and it helps them live a better life,
1: that's amazing. Yeah. Um, so we have Peter Barsoom, the founder and president of 1906, which is a cannabis company based in Colorado, um, to talk to us about the merits of, of legalization, but also some of the lessons, good and bad, that Colorado... Can import on the re- in part excuse me on the rest of the country. Um, Colorado, as you know, Emily was the first to really widely legalize it, and and it's really very readily available. My understanding is there are more dispensaries in Denver than there are Starbucks stores, which is a little crazy. Um, but there are some good lessons that Peter talks about that you can draw from Colorado uh, for other states that are considering legalization, and also for the federal government, which one day will hopefully catch up to the rest of the world and consider decriminalizing something that was created in nature and in my mind is not even one-tenth as bad as alcohol. All right, coming up, Peter Barsoom, founder and president of 1906. Welcome Peter Barsoom, president and founder of 1906. Uh, 1906 is, you started out, Peter, I'll let you tell it, but started out as an edible um, cannabis company and tell us the story of how this all came about.
2: Well, uh, this all came about in late 2014. I decided to quit my job after spending 20 years in finance and was looking for more entrepreneurial opportunities. And I had the opportunity to see firsthand the benefits of medicinal marijuana as I saw my wife struggling with anxiety and depression and the negative side effects in particular of some of the antidepressant medication that she was on. Uh, Medical marijuana helped her get off her meds and it transformed her life, Uh, and she was able to get back into work and get back into her acting career. So I, for the first time, had experienced somebody close to me uh, whose life had been transformed by medical marijuana, and that's what inspired us to get into the cannabis business. Um, It was a view that there are a lot of people who could benefit from marijuana versus alcohol and pharmaceuticals But there was a gap in the market in terms of products that were created for low-dose, fast-acting, and specific effects. And so we set about to create 1906 to provide a set of products for high-functioning adults like people like us around the table.
1: Uh, You know, it's interesting that you say that because as somebody who who doesn't really consume cannabis but does consume alcohol, it always struck me uh, that alcohol is a legal drug and a legal product It's not really classified as a drug, although I think it has the same properties, if not worse properties to some extent than cannabis does. Um, I've never really seen anybody get into a, a fist fight after getting stoned. I've never seen anybody... Um,
0: Maybe a fist fight with a bread bowl. Right. <laughs> exactly. With a
1: Dorito bag. But, um, so I explained to me in 1906, the name is relevant, Explain to us why 1906, but it also strikes me that about 100 years ago, if not more, somewhere along the way, the government decided that cannabis, which is a natural product was something that should not be in the marketplace, although it seems to me that the effects of cannabis are are not nearly as bad as the effects of alcohol for most people.
2: No, absolutely. And 1906 was the year that the Wiley Act was passed, which effectively started the era of prohibition of cannabis. So our mission is to bring cannabis back to its pre-prohibition status. So if we rewind 120 years ago, cannabis was widely available in apothecaries and pharmacies dispensed uh, by doctors as tinctures. It was in the uh, medical journals at the time as one of the healing medicinal plants that were available to us. So (laughs) It was uh, kind of during the era of Harry Anslinger and the whole reefer madness and the use of marijuana in order to criminalize uh, immigrant populations, particularly uh, black uh, populations at the time. And that's when we sort of developed this whole incorrect view of marijuana being addictive, causing psychosis, so on and so forth. So it was really the criminalization of marijuana was used as a tool to fight against uh, our own populations here.
1: What happened in the intervening 30 years where now you have uh, candidates like Cory Booker, like Amy Klobuchar, uh, really serious, um, obviously sitting senators, but also serious contenders for for the presidency, suddenly now saying, we should not only legalize marijuana, but, but expunge the records of those who were affected by the war on drugs. What do you think was the turning point in the last couple of decades where that was able to
2: happen? I think the turning point we can point to is Sanjay Gupta, who did a documentary on weed on CNN and showed the medicinal benefits of cannabis, in particular helping to treat uh, epilepsy among kids and showing kids who were nearly catatonic on their meds um, and still having seizures. And then when given cannabis, all of a sudden they had a a life transformation where they didn't need their meds, their seizures stopped. And I think that really uh, woke up the consciousness about what are the benefits of cannabis here. I think the other thing that happened is we realized as a society the cost of criminalization not just in financial costs, but the financial costs are significant. If we look at the state of New Jersey, the ACLU estimated that New Jersey spent $1 billion over the last 10 years on enforcing marijuana uh, criminal laws. Um, Those are resources, particularly in a state like New Jersey with high property taxes and limited government resources that are a waste. Um, Secondly, we realized the negative impact on those societies that have been most hurt by the criminalization of marijuana. Black and Latino communities and families that have been ripped apart, uh, people thrown in jail for either consumption or for the distribution of of marijuana, most often than not in kind of small numbers there. And look at what happens with our criminal justice system when people get out. In many cases, their lives are ruined. Uh, They can't get jobs. They have been set back uh, from an education perspective. Uh, the hardening that happens typically when somebody goes through the criminal justice system. So finally, people are, are waking up to the benefits of cannabis, but also the social and economic uh, costs of criminalization.
0: Uh, for criminalization, on that aspect of it, for more the health side of it, because it's a still drug that. Uh, for example, with edibles, they're not regulated. So you may go to one place and get 10 milligrams of a brownie, but then the next place you go, a brownie may be like 50 milligrams and how that is also not helpful for society.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we need a regulated market um, where producers are able to create controlled dose, low dose products for consumers so you know what it is that you're getting. When you open up a bottle of wine, you don't second guess how much alcohol is in the first glass versus the second glass. When you take an Advil, you're not playing Russian roulette with your Advil. However, in the early days of the marijuana market that were unregulated or not well regulated at least it's a crapshoot what you got. And so that's why we also entered the market to bring industrial food manufacturing and scientific techniques to ensure that what it is that you get is what the label says, that it's consistent over time and just as predictable as any other substances you put in your body.
1: What are the lessons from Colorado? You uh, left New York and moved to Colorado when you started this business, because Colorado obviously has has a very robust market, um, and legal, unlike New York and and other places on the East Coast. What are the lessons from Colorado, both good and bad, that you think apply as as the rest of this country looks to potentially legalize cannabis?
2: Yeah, if if you go back in 2014 when Colorado legalized cannabis, this was the first state in the U.S. and the first place really around the world where you can get legal adult-use cannabis. This was a massive social, political, economic, and legal experiment. Um, a number of the things that they got right is the fact that all the predictions that the naysayers uh, were talking about largely have not happened, whether it be teen use, for instance, which is a big concern. Teen use has, in fact, declined by, by most measures or at least stayed flat. So the accessibility of cannabis to adults hasn't necessarily meant that teens are using it more. So that's one thing. Um, the second thing is... Um, issues around uh, uh, the black market have largely, in Colorado, the black market is is largely eliminated for Colorado consumers as well. So we were able to bring back cannabis from cartels, from illegal drug dealers into an open, transparent, regulated system. Um, I think The nimbleness of Colorado and its regulatory structure over the last couple of years has also been a benefit in the sense that when products first came out, for instance, the dosing and the testing requirements were in a stringent. Those have gotten better over time. The things that Colorado didn't get right that other states are now doing is looking at what the social justice issues that are associated with the legalization of marijuana. And so one of the things that Colorado hasn't really done is focused on expungement. Um, focused on social equity and how to ensure that participation in the industry is widespread. Um, So those are the things that you're seeing as new states come online, typically New Jersey, for instance, or Massachusetts or California. They're starting to incorporate these types of issues in in their program. The last thing that Colorado didn't do is they didn't get good data measurements prior to the rollout of legalization. So a lot of people talk about increased incidence of uh, driving while impaired, for instance. And by and large, it's believable that you're going to get an increase in driving while impaired as there's more use of marijuana and people are figuring out how it is that it affects them. Um, And not having data beforehand is we don't really know really what the increases were in either fatalities or in car accidents involving marijuana use. So it's good for states as they roll things out to be sure that they collect accurate data beforehand there.
1: What's interesting to me is that there is a constant um, debate among people who are not completely opposed um, to legalization of some sort between decriminalization and legalization. And to me, decriminalization, you're talking about a black market and you're talking about trying to get rid of people on the black market. To me, decriminalization, all that does is really lead to a black market, right? Because what that now happens is you have the same people illegally selling the product. Um, They're not gonna get prosecuted for it, but the state derives no revenue from it. Um, Absolutely no, uh, it's kind of still in the shadows. And to me, in some ways, decriminalization, aside from the fact that it obviously prevents young black men at a higher rate from being locked up than they had been before. There's, in some ways, it's almost worse than nothing. I mean, I don't know if you agree with that or not. Yeah, It's
2: definitely not enough. Right. Um, I'm not sure w- I'd say it's worse than nothing, but <clears throat> it opens up a whole Pandora's box of now you've got a lot more accessibility, but of product that might be laced, might have pesticides, not grown under appropriate conditions. These are psychoactive substances that we put in our body. They affect us physically, physiologically. And so it's important to have controls on it so that we know when it is that we're taking something which can have such a significant effect um, that it's safe and healthy. And it's medicine. We don't decriminalize medicine. We legalize medicine and we regulate medicine. And the same approach should be taken with respect to to marijuana.
0: I'm just kind of going off the black market thing. I know In 2018, Canada legalized marijuana, but their black market is kind of really burgeoning because uh, stores aren't able to reach supplies fast enough, and the taxes are really kicking a lot of places' butts. So I guess that's also something. What have you seen? Because I know in Colorado you said the black market is down, but Canada, the whole country as a whole, the black market's up.
2: Yeah. Well, you got to look at it this way. Canada just legalized in October. So it's only been a few months. And the rollout of these programs takes some time. So as Canada supply, as the Canadian LP's uh, supply issues uh, uh, become uh, nascent, as they expand production, there's not enough stores out there for people to buy. The uh, So most people are only really able to buy through the government-run website. So I think we'll see also as they legalize other products. One of the things that Canada did is they only legalized flour and uh, soft gel and and oils there. What we know from our own research is that 65% of consumers prefer edibles to smokable. Most people are reducing their smoking, not increasing their smoking. We have a problem with uh, the use of uh, vapes among teens, for instance. So the, the fact that Canada only gave people kind of smoking option and a very limited soft gel option means that they haven't provided the types of products that consumers who, are, who have accessibility to the black market already have. So until the Canadian system sort of comes up and gives people the choices of the products that they have, you're going to still continue to see a thriving black market in Canada.
1: What was the rationale for that? Did they think that edibles appeal to children more? Did they thought it'd be chocolate? You know, people would want to eat lollipops or chocolate and, and there'd be younger. Was that the fear? or What was the fear with Canada?
2: Yeah, I think, I think that was the fear. And <clears throat> it's a misguided fear. In other words, when we look at the data um, in the rollout of Colorado, for instance, we did see an increase in uh, calls to the poison control center. We saw an increase in kids going to the emergency room for exposure to cannabis. Um, two things around that. Number one, part of that data may be spurious in terms of now people might have uh, reported it as cannabis where they private, prior uh, they might not have reported it as cannabis for fear of getting in trouble. So, and then the, the second thing is. In Colorado, at least, everything is in child-resistant boxes. So it is no different than Tylenol or other substances there that are in child-resistant containers inside your home. And it's the parent's responsibility just to ensure that kids don't have access to that. We've got to do our part as an industry to make sure that we've got good packaging, that it's not made attractive to kids. Um, but uh, that's kind of where the situation has has happened. And if you look at also the data, the number of calls to poison control center for kids getting into cleaning supplies or getting into other things exceeds orders of magnitude that of cannabis. So while there's been an increase in the actual number of situations where kids have been uh, unfortunately exposed to cannabis and have suffered some sort of adverse uh, actions... Uh, Typically those adverse reactions go away after a few days, so there's no indication that there's any long-term or or permanent damage, thank God. Um, And I think it's just this fear around edibles equals things for kids. Uh, And while there has been definitely some of that in the way some of the stoner culture products have been in terms of brownies and gummies, there's a whole other world of edibles. The whole other world of edibles that includes beverages and tinctures and chocolates and other products that are specifically designed and specifically marketed to adults. So we, we, we shouldn't conflate the two. You can do it right. You can also do it wrong.
1: Although I have to say, I've been to your factory in Colorado, and aside from the fact that I'm the mother of the only child who doesn't like chocolate, um, it is really Willy Wonka's factory. It's unbelievable. You've got these vats of of chocolate that you infuse with different kinds of cannabis, and it's um, amazing. mean. In addition to the fact that it really just smells incredibly well, <laughs> yeah. it really especially is the like, days we make our peanut butter cups. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, you know, I, I think there are a bunch of kids that would just dive right into a vat of that, just not even knowing what's in there. So it's so just delicious smelling. Um, you know, to me, what's interesting about this is that it seems that the public will to legalize is there much more than than unfortunately politicians have um, across the board. Uh, you do have members of Congress now and the Senate obviously saying that they support legalization. But even so-called liberal states are taking their time. I have a house up in Massachusetts um, and I did a little research. When I was up there, um, I'm in Western Massachusetts, which is like the People's Republic. It's, it's as liberal as it gets. And even there, um, you need a medical marijuana card to even walk, they won't even open the door for you without a medical marijuana card, and, and Massachusetts has legalized, but but it seems like it's not popping up for recreational um, as quickly as Colorado did. I'm not sure what the disconnect is or what you think about that.
2: Yeah, Massachusetts has been a slow rollout. Um, it's the uh, They've taken their time, which I think is, is, is rightfully so, uh, while the voters voted in at the same time that they voted Trump in, and if you also just go back for a second on election day, the two winners on election day were Trump and cannabis. Right. Not um, not
1: in the same states, but yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly.
2: Um, and uh, so it makes sense for places like Massachusetts to take their time and understand what the consequences are and ensure that there's local community support. You had in Colorado a situation where there was widespread medical marijuana stores and a, and a thriving medical marijuana market. So it was a lot easier to basically take the medical marijuana market and use that to grow into the recreational, um, pretty much uh, in an overnight fashion. Massachusetts had a very small medical marijuana program and they've been very um, strict about how to let adult stores and other things open up there. So I think it's just a matter of time and five years from now we'll look back and be like, okay, the fact that it took Massachusetts two years to roll it out is okay because they're doing it in a thoughtful way. Well, It's coming.
0: Yeah, well, <laughs> what, I'll wait for it. What's interesting is cannabis-related job openings uh, grew 76% in 2018, and then it said that the Bureau of Labor Statistics said that there are going to be more cannabis jobs than manufacturing by 2020. So I feel like that's certainly something lawmakers, and especially Republicans, I feel can't ignore.
2: Yeah, I, and I think it— it's even beyond that because the consequences of a new industry have reverberation effects beyond that. So it's not just the producers and those directly involved in the cannabis industry. As you start to look concentric circles outside of that, you're going to have an industry that is focused on construction and building, because it's going to take more greenhouses, it's going to take more uh, manufacturing centers. So there's a positive effect on the construction business. And as you go out further and further, there's a positive effect on marketing and packaging services, on legal services, so on and so forth. So we have an opportunity to create a massive new market or transform a massive new market from illegal to legal that we haven't had since effectively prohibition. Um, And given how uh, important jobs are to the Republican agenda, this is something uh, that Republicans and Democrats alike should be uh, totally in favor of. And if you look, for instance, back when Florida voted on medical marijuana, 71% of the voters in Florida voted on medical marijuana. My guess is if you asked the voters of Florida, is the earth flat or is it round? You probably wouldn't even get 71% on that. So
1: Emily's from Florida, so she could yeah. attest to it's it, absolutely it, true. the <laughs> nature of the state. I would
0: say 71% would say it, it is flat. <laughs> so.
1: um, let's talk about... Uh, the whole gateway drug concept, because that's one that I think a lot of opponents of, of, of cannabis legalization constantly bring up, and and so if you're gonna have a joint, you obviously are gonna be shooting a heroin within six weeks. Talk about the science behind that argument.
2: Um, the short answer is there is none. Right. Um, the The notion that a particular substance is a gateway to other substances has no validity in, in fact or in research whatsoever. Um, what how, it's, it's not the drug that's a gateway drug. It's often the drug dealers that are gateways to other drugs. So the criminalization, the putting it in the dark shadows, the fact that you've got uh, folks who are you know uh, profiting from other types of substances and they might be the ones who are pushing people to go from one substance to another substance is the more likely fact uh, there than it is anything that's particular to the substance itself. Um, <clears throat> if you take a go bean before you work out, doesn't mean you're going to come back home and you know want to snort coke. Um, there's just no evidence of that whatsoever. And that was a great way of demonizing the plant, uh, you know, during the reefer madness years.
1: So when they talk about gateway drugs and rego- uh, regulation, it would be much better for a seventeen-year-old, I guess, or an eighteen-year-old, or a twenty-one-year-old, whatever the, the age of, of uh, legalization is to be able to go to a store and buy something that they understand
0: as a, as a true product rather than knowing what something is laced with on the black market, as you said. Right. In, the, in the piggyback off, you, you, you mentioned your Go Beans, just so the listeners know what they are. They're these really tasty uh, THC CBD-infused edibles from your company. Uh, but it says specifically on the box how much THC and how much CBD it has, which, to your point, Julie, is really important.
2: Yeah. Otherwise you can end up in a bad experience and nothing is worse than a overdose or taking too much cannabis. You feel like the world is falling. Um, You can't wait to find the stop button and you just want to get off that train. And so it's really, really important that everybody in uh, using cannabis uh, starts with a low dose uh, and see how it affects their body before before taking too much on. Um, you know, we've learned as adults now how to titrate alcohol. I know that two martinis affects me in a particular way versus two glasses of wine. And so we've learned through socialization, through our parents, through our communities, what is the right level and the right time for alcohol. And it's going to take some time for people to do the same thing with this new substance called cannabis.
1: Um, speaking of cannabis, when I was a Fox for about 14 years, the running joke was that I was a huge fish fan, and literally, viewers would tweet me and email me about what a complete loser I am. I took you to your first fish show, or actually, you <laughs> took me to your first fish show. In Colorado, um, I think it was last August, was it the best experience of your life or just one of the best experiences of your life?
2: It was It was definitely one of the best experiences of my life. <laughs> you were life.
1: so out of there after like the first hour. <laughs> if no, no, I turn no, around, was... you were gone.
2: <laughs> it was the community gathering of fish fans is amazing. Like this is a community that I had never been exposed to and they the bond that brings thousands of people together for three days in denver or in some cases all around the country, people who are traveling there is uh, uh, is an amazing community that they've created.
1: And for those fish fans who are listening, and the rest of you, I don't want to hear from you because I've heard from you for fourteen years on this. But um, you are friends with one of the guys from Fish, right? Or uh, he's a he's an investor. He's a friend. Right? He's a he's
2: a he's a friend of ours. Right. Yeah, yeah. Tom Marshall, who is the songwriter for Fish, and we had created a special edition uh, amphibian bliss cups for, uh, for the fish show, which was a, a big success among, among fish fans.
1: I might add, I was totally geeking out when you introduced me to him. I could not be more excited. And it turns out his daughter went to the same high school I went to, and he could not be less impressed with me. It was like the biggest letdown. <laughs> he, I was so he... ecstatic to meet somebody from a fish. He's like, yeah, I get to see you. All right, next. <laughs> which was completely heartbreaking for, for me, who has spent probably all my disposable income in college following fish around the greater New England area and blowing off my exams and otherwise living a life my parents would not want to know about. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I, I just had to talk about that because it was something that I hadn't, I hadn't gone to a fish show, I think, since college. And, no, and you,
0: you lit up when you were talking about it. I remember before you went, you're like, guess where I'm going. Know, and nobody else was impressed, <laughs> but I was super excited.
1: <laughs> and I dragged a, a friend of mine who works at the New York times, um, there or He was going to be there anyway, but the two of us are the only two people I think I know in my adult life who were ecstatic to be there. Um, nobody, else <laughs> <seemed> to, <laughs> nobody else seemed to appreciate the love that I bear for Fish, the band.
2: Well, everybody else there was. Everybody else there was, yes. yes. So you just need to find your community, I Julie. I do, yeah. I know.
1: I might need to move out to Colorado or yeah. Vermont or wherever they all hang out. I know, nobody on the Upper West Side of New York, apparently. Well, actually... Trey Anastasio, the, the lead singer of Fish, lives on the Upper West Side and I, and I see him on the street once in a while and when I do, it takes every fiber of my being not to do what I did to your friend and completely throw myself all over him and tell him how transformative he was to my college years.
2: And, you just need to find that secret club of Fish fans on the Upper West Side. Uh, all, all the viewers here, you know, email yeah. Julie, let her know where please, the Fish people hang out. Please
1: do, because I've heard so much negative stuff about it and hashtag you all suck because <laughs> um, I love Fish. Let's go back to... Um, Um, let's go back to your life and sort of how you you said that you were working on on, on Wall Street or in finance and and your wife, um, you'd met your wife and and she kind of opened your eyes to this, but that must take an inordinate amount of um, discipline, if not not bravery, to give up everything you've known your whole life and invest everything you have in a completely new industry that has uh, a lot of upside potentially, but also a lot of risk attached to it.
2: Yeah, I think we were sufficiently crazy. Um, left New York after 20 years, moved out to Colorado, um, invested uh, you know, all the money I'd made in, in finance into uh, starting up a cannabis business. And I remember at the time, um, I was fortunate enough to have a lot of people think, wow, that is a great idea. Uh, and to be very supportive, and we had early on, investors that believed in our vision and what it is that that we are trying to do. But it was uh, tough going, whether it be raising money um, was difficult, getting into and understanding the dynamics of the Colorado market were difficult. Um, Early on, recruiting people, recruiting top quality talent was also difficult. What's amazing is since we launched the company in 2015 and four years later, how much the world has transformed that now it's the talk of the town across the country um, that more and more states are legalizing it. You have how many governors today from Mario Cuomo to uh, Pritzker in Illinois uh, to Connecticut to Maryland, you know, all across the country, political leaders to uh, presidential candidates who are talking about legalization of cannabis. So the world has changed in ways that I couldn't have uh, even imagined four four years ago. Uh, You've got multi-billion dollar companies on the Canadian and the U.S. uh, stock market. And remember, America is about making money. And so those are the kinds of stories about, you know, the making of money that actually has a role in destigmatizing cannabis.
1: You know, the one fascinating thing about this is, though, because it's still banned federally, banks really can't loan to you. I mean, you have to go through alternate sources of lending in order to to get financing, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, we have a basic business checking account. We pay close to $2,000 a month to our bank for a basic business checking account. Why? Because they can. Um, Because there are increased compliance costs, but because they can, it's very difficult to get access to banking services, just kind of basic transactional services. Um, but lending from banks is pretty much non-existent. So even on things like a commercial mortgage, which, you know, should be in the single digits, uh, people are paying 12, 15% on a, on a highly secured asset there. So
1: Uh, if you want to open up, um, a facility anywhere, let's say Massachusetts, New Jersey, anywhere you want to expand, you can't just go to uh, whoever, Bank of America, and, and take, out a, take out a commercial mortgage. You have to actually go to alternate business lenders to even do that for real estate because of the nature of what you do.
2: It's even worse than that, Julie. I was about to buy an apartment here in New York uh, because we're coming back, uh, opening up Massachusetts and New Jersey and other states. Went through the mortgage process with one of the large national uh, lenders. And at the final stage, even though I had disclosed it from day one, kind of where my primary source of income was, at the final stage before we were done, they said, actually, because you derive your income from marijuana, we can't lend you. So it's not only that I can't borrow against the business, I can't even borrow personally to buy my own apartment that is in my name and get a mortgage because my primary source of income comes from the cannabis business.
1: That's absurd.
0: No, it's just counterintuitive too because it forces people to go through kind of backdoor means to get what they need to get to move forward, which is the opposite again of what the government wants.
2: Yeah, and the opposite. If we want a legal regulated system – One of the most important elements of that is the tracking of financial flows. If everything is happening in cash, if you can't get services there, you're exposing the industry to criminal activity, whether it be, you know, people who want to go in and and rob dispensaries because of the belief that they have uh, a lot of cash in them, or you encourage folks to potentially, you know, hide uh, uh, financial flows there. So all of this Uh, the situation as it relates to kind of banking is, is antiquated and at cross purposes with creating a legal regulated market. Mm. And the power is in the hands of Congress. Congress can and should act. We have now more than 60% of Americans live in States that have legalized some form of cannabis or another, whether it be medical or, um, uh, or adult use. And so if more than half the country lives in States where there is a legal, regulated market. What does it take for Congress to finally act?
1: Well, you think this is Congress's plan to basically starve access, you and others of access to capital and therefore stymie the industry, kind of strangle it in its crib before it gets going, or you think it's just an unintended consequence?
2: I think Congress has no plans, um, and so I don't think it's a specific act, but I think uh, other than a specific act of cowardice. Right.
1: Um, Tell us one thing about you that people might be surprised to learn. We always ask everybody this.
2: Oh, um, let's see, well, I met my, my wife in the, uh, in Brazil on a yoga retreat. We we're living a mile apart from each other in Manhattan, going to the same yoga studio, but at different times and never really run into each other. And it took, uh, a trip to Brazil, thousands of miles away for a week on a deserted, uh, uh not deserted, but on natural park reserve for, uh, for, for me to meet the love of my life. That's awesome.
1: Awesome. Um, You know, I think this discussion is going to keep going and going because it seems to me that more and more states are finally taking a look at this. I know New Jersey's up next. I know New York, um, Governor Cuomo has talked about hypothetically doing something here as well. It it always strikes me as a New Yorker um, that the state is so late to the game on this issue, especially as as the hub of commerce, as as a good liberal state, why Governor Cuomo has been dragging his feet on this issue. I, I think he's finally seen the light. Um,
2: what do you? Why do you think he finally saw the light?
1: Oh, I think political realities have forced him to see the light. I think finally uh, the Democrats finally control the legislature in a meaningful way for the first time as, since he's been governor. Um, I think he has seen the writing on the wall with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others getting elected, that I think uh, he understands that this is finally uh, an issue that, that people in the Democratic base are paying, and not just the Democratic base, I shouldn't say it's just Democratic, that people are paying attention to um, because of the fact that it is about social justice, and I'm sure he wouldn't mind the revenue either. I mean, we, we, we talk about the fact that this is a social justice issue all the time. Politicians don't wanna say they're gonna balance their budget on what's a, a quote-unquote sin tax, but the reality is you can raise millions of dollars, potentially. And um, should. And should, and, and states have balanced budget amendments. They all have to balance their budgets. Um, it's a great source of revenue, I think, and and something that privately politicians talk about, but publicly they don't want to sort of say no. that they're doing it. But, but that's really a big incentive, I think, for, for politicians yeah. as well, for governors to, to balance the budget.
2: And I think we're starting to also wake up to and realize what some of the other, in addition to the economic benefits, direct in terms of tax revenue, what the other benefits are in terms of Uh, healthy outcomes, uh, patient outcomes, so opioid use decreases. We have some data that shows that uh, Medicare costs actually go down in states with medical marijuana. We have some recent data from a study that was done uh, by Sue Sisley, who's one of the leading researchers on uh, cannabis, and she did a study among vets with respect to PTSD, and uh, that the use of medical marijuana among vets who have PTSD resulted in decreased opioid use. And interestingly, the second drug that we saw decreased usage of among veterans with PTSD was Viagra. Oh. So, yeah.
1: That's interesting. Um, You know, we, we talked briefly about the fact that this may be a gateway drug in some people's mind. It's actually, based on studies, potentially quite the opposite, where people who are taking opioids because of whatever issues they've had, whether it's a, it's a stress factor or it's or it's um, a PTSD issue, um, actually can use this product as opposed to having to take something much worse, whether it's Vicodin or, or, yeah. or other opioids and certainly heroin, which becomes just a complete slippery slope to, to complete
2: disaster. I mean, if, if anything is a gateway drug, what we have seen is prescription no opioids are the gateway drug.
1: No question. When people talk about the legalization of cannabis, they talk about the the financial benefits, they talk about um, the criminal justice element. But I I feel like what you just said is not something that people talk about enough. And yet, you go to states, New Hampshire being a great example because it's always the first in the nation, so so people constantly politically talk about the opioid epidemic in New Hampshire. that's not by accident. These, it's not like these young men and young women are suddenly waking up and shooting up heroin. It's because they had a car accident or they broke their foot or, or some injury took place or some sort of psych- psychological injury took place where they feel the need to get a prescription drug and as you said, they become addicted to it and that's what leads to the slippery slope of, of these people dying at, a, at an yep. incredible rate. Right. And I'm wondering if
2: people... Maybe we should criminalize opioids. Maybe we should make them illegal. I mean, exactly right. how many people have died from cannabis?
1: I think zero, right? Zero. Yeah.
2: How many people have died from this drug, you know, from the opioids? Uh, uh, Tens of thousands of people. If even five people died from a cannabis overdose we'd be seeing it on the front page of the new york times people would be talking about needing to criminalize it getting rid of this substance we need to take a much broader look at what are the substances that are available to people which things we call legal which things we call medicine which things we call illegal and then you begin to see that there's no rhyme or reason to this they're artifacts of our limited scientific understanding they're artifacts of the political power that pharmaceuticals have, um, and their uh, artifacts of the fact that they're able to convince doctors that somehow opioids are, are, are good to give out. And so there's a massive education that needs to happen with respect to health practitioners as, as to the, uh, the benefits of cannabis, but also some of the really harmful effects of some things that we uh call approved by the FDA.
1: Well, and and you just nailed it because the pharmaceutical lobby is incredibly potent, very powerful, and there's no, uh, you know, you're starting to see an emergence of a small cannabis lobby, but it That's can't it, it can't compete
0: with what the power of the pharmaceuticals has been able to establish. Totally. No, but we're and we're seeing how important conversations like this are because again, it's taking away the vilification of the drug because that is what has been so like omnipresent for so long. But now the more people talking about it, one of my friends, she had two tours in Afghanistan and two in Iraq and has really bad PTSD. And I know some uh, veterans clinics that she went to when she asked about cannabis, they completely were like, no, or were just against it. And it's the more people talk about it. And she finally did find one that she can get. And they probably prescribed a ton of opioids to her to calm her down, which made her way worse. worse. And so, but when she did finally find one with it, it completely changed how she is as a human. So it I just think conversations like this are important. And then when people start acting on them. But the more people have the knowledge, the more they can do something. For
2: yeah, Emily, you're absolutely right. It is criminal what we're doing as a society to our vets who serve this country, uh, fought hard and came back with um, really severe problems. And we're not addressing... Their issues, we're not addressing their uh, quality of life, and we're denying them access to medicine. If it was my family member or my friend who was suffering from something, who wouldn't go? I would go to the ends of the earth to find some way to relieve that loved one's uh, suffering. We all talk about how we love our veterans, but what are we doing actually to get out there and relieve their suffering and give them access to products that? could be potentially, I'm not saying it's for everybody, but definitely for a significant enough group of people, they found relief that they've never been able to find in their life through uh, medical cannabis. And uh, we still have severe restrictions on it in terms of the VA research, in terms of the VA dispensing it. And then also, uh, as you probably know, and I'm sure you have a lot of listeners who are gun owners as well, uh, the fact that if you have a medical marijuana card, technically you can't uh, you can't you can't purchase a gun as well. Um, and so, uh, why is it that we have to make a choice between a Second Amendment right that we have to own a gun, and also quality of life in terms of being able to use medical cannabis?
1: That's interesting. So, if you have not a not a mental or psychological issue, um, but you have I'm going to say epilepsy, right, and you have a medical marijuana card you can't purchase a gun. Correct. That's insane considering how we allow everybody on the planet to purchase guns when they have all sorts of mental
0: No, and and it goes to the point at the very beginning of when we were talking about cannabis is you don't see a husband come home and beat up his wife smoking a ton of weed, but you do see the alcoholic come home and do that. So why give that person a gun? (laughs) Right.
1: No, where this kind of opened my eyes, and I know we have to wrap up, but where this opened my eyes um, a couple of years ago is I had a very good friend, have a very good friend, whose son was terminally ill with cancer. um, And uh, he, the only thing that would relieve his son's pain was cannabis? I mean, he was just literally the only thing that could help him towards the end of his life. And and my friend had to go and f- essentially find drug dealers to buy buy his son, his teenage son, um, cannabis on the street. God knows what it was laced with, because he needed to help his son relieve his pain. And you said about you said that you said well, how do we treat our veterans? How do we treat the terminally ill um, in places that medical marijuana is not yet legal? Um, where we don't provide that kind of relief to them and instead provide them with opioids that make them go loopy and, and, and not really have a quality of life towards the end of their life that they yep. should have. Um, and, and that really, I never gave it much thought before that. And That was about five or six years ago. And after that happened, um, I just, as somebody who really doesn't consume cannabis but became a huge proponent of legalization because I just thought this is completely insane that we're, we're treating a product that is created in nature that to me, from everything I've seen, has not even close to the effects of alcohol, never mind opioids or anything else, that we're treating it in a way that is criminal, is still Schedule 1, um, which is which is absurd to me. So that's my two cents on this whole issue. Yeah. Peter Barsoom, president and founder of 1906. Thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you, rock. Julie. Bye. Thank you, Emily. You rocked. Yeah, thanks. Uh,
0: this
1: is quite a week, Emily. I, I've got to tell you... Um, I think this is the week that everybody focused on all the wrong things, as always, um, thanks to the lovely, uh, social media platform of Twitter and cable news. What's making me salty is that this whole Juicy Smollett, I don't even, Jesse, Juicy, told me how to Jesse. Um, I don't watch Empire, so I don't know, but whatever happened, happened. Um, I'm sorry that he felt the need to make, apparently make up that he was attacked, um, I'm also sorry that he decided to blame people who are in the MACA movement on it. Um, Having said that, we just had a guy who had a list of journalists and progressive politicians um, that he was drawing up, and apparently a guy in the Coast Guard who was days away from going on a killing spree and killing and having a massive terrorist attack where he was going to go kill all these people. There were weapons found in his... Home. He is a coast guardsman, so he obviously knows his way around uh, weapons. He was looking for where uh, where progressive politicians lived. He he googled that um, on his computer, on his work computer, because he obviously is not that smart. You know, this is scary to me, and this is rhetoric that emanates. I hate to say this, but when when the president calls journalists the enemy of the people. Um, some crazy people take that to heart, and I think you have a responsibility as the leader of the free world to choose your words carefully um, because you do have an influence over people in outsized ways. And while we're all sitting there focusing on some dumb actor and doing some dumb stuff, I really wish we would take a moment to think about the fact that words have consequences and calling uh, journalists enemy of the people is just completely the wrong lesson to draw and impart from uh, what can happen, and we saw what could happen. Similarly, the NRA put out a um, magazine this month that had uh, Gabby Giffords, who, as you recall, was shot um, by a gunman in Colorado, in Arizona a few years ago. A picture of her with Nancy Pelosi, with the tagline "Target Practice" next to it. Now, the NRA is going to say, "Oh, that was just a coincidence." But again, words have consequences, and crazy people take those words to heart. So when you have a face of a woman who was already shot, and the Speaker of the House, the most powerful female politician in the country, um, next to the word target practice, that makes me incredibly salty. It makes me more than salty. It actually makes me incredibly frustrated and angry and scared for where we're going as a society. So please, NRA, Donald Trump, words have consequences. Just think about what you're doing before you do it, unless you really want people to take you seriously and uh, in ways that I think hope that you don't
0: right um just quickly off of that uh someone on twitter who i follow charlotte Clymer, she's a transgender uh activist and former military and she was talking about the treatment of soldiers once they're out of the military but being in it as an infantry person for example you're trained to kill every day every single day it's ingrained in you and it's that is who you are what you're learned to do and it's reactive so then when you get out of the military and don't have that kind of go, 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 I, th- I feel like a lot of people look towards groups like white supremacist groups where, or groups where they find this brotherhood and they find this enemy because that's what they were trained to do, find an enemy. So it's when people get out of the military, it's again, kind of even what we talked about in our conversation today, it's treatment of people who have gone through these traumatic situations and learn differently. Exactly, it's um, so what's making you salty? Uh, what is making me salty this week is the Roman Catholic Church and what we're learning from all the sex abuse and the cover-up uh, in Europe, in America, and how just there's no accountability within the church and there's really no system to take down these priests who have really ruined the lives of so many young children.
1: Although the Pope did come out with a very, very strongly worded statement um, this week. About them um, and about pedophile priests uh, in ways that I think previous popes never had, um, and and he um, lay he he um, Cardinal McCarrick, who was uh, the cardinal of, uh, of, of Washington, in Washington D.C. and in in the Newark um, archdiocese in New Jersey, and, and had been a very prominent figure in the Catholic Church in the United States, um, but then was found to um, abuse, having have abused. Um, seminarians and and apparently children, um, the Pope did take action against him. I think the highest ranking man of the church who, who, who is no longer a member of the church or no longer a cardinal, um, because of what this Pope did. So uh, do you feel you're Catholic? I'm not, do you feel like the church is moving slowly, but surely towards more accountability, or do you think this is just window dressing?
0: I think it's window dressing because, okay, a statement is one thing, but actual change I think now with social media and as globalization happens more people are finding out and connecting dots where it was a lot easier to not have patterns and not publicize things when you you don't get information so quickly.
1: Yeah, look, I will say again, we just had a conversation about cannabis and, and one has nothing to do with the other, but I will say that even in recent years, what the church has done um, has come a long, long, long way from what it had done under John Paul II, right. um, where, where, in, where they really just pretended this issue didn't exist. So right. um, I have to, I do have to say, um, the Catholic Church does not move fast. It no, is, it no, is no, not no. an institution that is designed to move fast. They think in, millennia, in terms of millennia, not in terms of days or years. Um, but I do feel in the last twenty years there has been slowly but surely, uh, partially because of social media, partially because. Um, Newspapers and others have really started to pay attention to this issue, but um, an accounting and a reckoning um, of what's going on. But um, I, I can see how members of the church who are good Catholics are still frustrated about the fact that they are not moving as fast as some would wish. I agree with that.
0: Agreed, and then I would just like to say one more thing. Our listeners may have heard new intro and outro and transition music. I'd like to give a thanks to Evan Donahue a great musician and you can find him on Spotify but he made us a very unique tune so Evan, you rock thank you the music is fantastic and everybody we'll see you soon
1: take care